Welcome to episode 158 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast about using, learning, and sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Whether you're a noob or a master sudoer, welcome to the show. I'm Michael, and with me today are the bad boys of Linux, Noah, Ryan, and Dustin. And Dustin is a longtime friend of the show and a contributor to Ubuntu Budgie and has head, has his head in the clouds as his for his day job every day. So Dustin, how have you been? Oh, not too bad. Just been, you know, plugging away at life, doing a little bit of stuff with Budgie. We've kind of redone Shuffler, so that's been a bunch of bug fixes this Wait, week you can't and... just run over that and act like that's no big deal. Let's <laughs> let's talk about Shuffler for a second, because I'm a window tiling fan, and so are you. So what is Shuffler for those who maybe don't run Ubuntu Budgie yet? Well, it's essentially a daemon in the background that adds some additional keyboard management for all your windows. Nice. And it's it's not an i3 thing. It's got some similarities. It's for the people who would like to, you know, not use their mouse to touch and move around their uh, windows. Mm-hmm. So that was recently rewritten. It was originally written in Python. Now it's in Vala, thanks to Jacob. But he's also been adding a bunch of new uh, features to it that just allow you to kind of do a little more with the keyboard versus what you could on phase one. Phase one was a little more of an auto arranger Tyler type thing. So is it like I I'm think that is on that? So cool. Yeah. Is it like an i3 adjacent thing? Uh, similar no, functionality. It's more just being able to split your screen, and then you still have to kind of manually move things there with the keyboard. Like it's not like a tiling where you know you go full screen, half screen, third screen. You know, right. change your direction, all that kind of stuff. So it's just so it's a, like it's a, a quick tile it. system. Then yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. That's like a great way to sort of describe it. So nice. it was mostly from my i3 days, so I was kind of bugging them about how I needed better <laughs> window management. So nice. I love it. <laughs> so we'll say it's influenced by, but you know, there's always different opinions with who's building what and what it should be and what it shouldn't be. So it's still pretty good, though. I like it. Uh, outside of that, just some exam certification studying stuff. Played with a bit of the PowerShell for the show this week, and I didn't get too deep, mostly because I went kind of the easy route and did the snap package. And then when you try <laughs> to update a few things, you get a few uh, read-only file system issues. So, What was your take put, on PowerShell? Uh, it's, I actually think technically it's a decent language, like or scripting language. It, it actually is. It's It's got a lot of benefits that... You know, like everything's an object, yeah. almost immediately. And also, when you uh, like, when you do, when you like in, import something, it becomes like a collection stuff. Like, th- yeah, it kind of. It's. I was. I was doing the same thing, and then I, I had a like a couple weeks ago. I talked about. I did a, a, a local unit Linux user group, and somebody did like a presentation on PowerShell, and I was like, "Yeah, great, this right. is gonna be fantastic. Like, I'm gonna love this." <laughs> and then at the end of it, I was like, "I'm really annoyed that you did a PowerShell presentation here." But only because that I now realize that it's good and I kind of like it and I don't want to use it still. Well, like, just but it's arbitrarily that, like, reasons. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, even the fact that you can control your output as granular as you can, you know, it's sure it doesn't do the standard text in text out type stuff that we are very fond of in Linux. But when you have a complex data set, it's actually a lot easier to use. And the other thing about it is, and the reason why, or the true benefit I see to running it on Linux is mostly when I'm stuck managing Windows infrastructure or even like storage arrays and stuff, because almost every one of those darn things has some sort of PowerShell integration. And so, for example, at one of my other jobs where I could run Linux, I couldn't manage half of the equipment, so I'd still have to spin up a stupid Windows VM just to manage it. Whereas if I could install PowerShell as it was, then I could just kind of go on my way and it wouldn't have been that big of an issue. Interesting. Nice. Yeah. 
So, you know, it's got its pros and cons. And is, is it something that I use day to day? No, but that's also just a time thing. You know, I've got a thousand other things to kind of learn and keep my fingers dipped in. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Uh, and Noah, you're also someone who always has fingers into something. So what have you been up to this week? I have been playing with the Pinebook Pro. My gosh, is this a cool device? If you guys haven't played uh, right here, actually. If yeah. you haven't played with it or you haven't seen it, like, this is one of those computers that, like, you notice there's no branding on it whatsoever. It's just the, the smudge from being in my backpack. But other than that, like, no branding whatsoever. Aluminum chassis, really 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 sharp display i mean it's a super isn't that display thing. beautiful for 199 dollar laptop i can't i can't believe it i said on my show last week uh, where i did a little bit more in depth of a review i said that i thought this ranks in the six to eight hundred dollar uh, laptop range five six hundred dollar laptop range i mean it's a really solid machine there are a couple of I wouldn't necessarily call them pain points, but just things that people should be aware of what you're getting with this kind of computer. So, for example, one of the things I went to do just early on is I went, I'm going to go and reinstall the operating system so I can encrypt the hard drive. Well, it turns out you can't really install an operating system. You can just flash a file system that has a installed operating system onto it. And so so little things like that are, are just things that you go, okay, but you know what? Really, I bought a Raspberry Pi in a laptop form, right? Right. Um, but I, I have, I have, yeah, I've never been impressed with a $200 device. Like I have been impressed with this $200 device, not even close. It's so interesting because I have computers and laptops here that range from $600 on up, but I end up grabbing the pine book more than any of them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it just, I was talking about this with someone in telegram who also just got a pine book and they were mentioning how much they were using it. And I said, it's weird. I can't put my finger on it. Why? Maybe it's because it's less expensive and I don't care about throwing it on a couch cushion or bringing it with me on a trip and worrying somebody might steal it as much as I would, say, an $800 or $1,000 laptop where you're constantly worried, what if somebody steps on it, what if not? I think it's um, all we also it. talk. I think it's also yeah, the lightness. It just feels it. like it's a just... hacker laptop, too. You just feel like you're hacking away. You have something that you can customize and make yeah. your own right there. Because when you open that bottom panel up, Noah, and look inside, you're going to be like, Okay, I could easily put another mainboard in here. I could oh, yeah. easily add in NVMe drive if I want. Like it's just made you know, to the, work on. The 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 other thing is too is their their level of care for privacy too. So these these function keys, if you press and hold for I think it's ten seconds, it will toggle Bluetooth, uh, Wi-Fi, so on and so forth, and allows you to turn get off the your same cam. Yeah. Well, yeah, you get the same functionality. I mean, to, if I'm being honest with you, I still put a little piece of tape over it, but it, it allows you to get the same privacy that you would get with the Librem laptop with the hardware kilt switches, except you don't have these ugly switches sticking out. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. It might even be the thing where when you buy like a $200 device, you kind of expect, okay, they're promising this, you're going to get this. And maybe in this particular scenario, it sounds like only, I say sounds like because I don't have one, that they've kind of knocked it out of the park. So instead of getting what you're kind of expecting to be for $200, you're actually getting substantially more. And you're You're getting what they claim that you're getting. That's the shocking thing about, you know, most companies tell you something and you're like, okay, well, this one thing, like they'll, they'll tell you upfront about certain things that they expect is a possibility of being a negative. And then once you are already aware of that, when you get it and you actually try it, it's like, it's exactly what they said it was. So yep. this is what I wanted to be. The screen is so Im- impressive because if you go into the store right now, walk into a Best Buy or your local electronics store and look at Chromebooks that are in that price range, which there are very few, most of them are slightly more expensive than that. And you look at the screen quality, you see that kind of 
dull colors. The screen brightness is just muted and it you you know you're getting a two to three hundred dollar laptop. Whereas when you boot up the Finebook Pro, you're like, that that screen that Noah's mentioning there, it it just exceeds all expectations. Yeah. It's a fantastic laptop and it, it really I guess they really the issue only is that it's based on ARM and it's not really an issue necessarily because that's one of the values is that it's super lightweight and it's like ridiculous right. battery life. But it's, it's the there are some applications. Yeah, but you still. Yeah, I don't know if that. You know, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. So I, I thought the same thing. I, I actually, there's a funny story I told in on Ask Noah this week. If you, if anybody wants to check it out, but essentially, I got locked out of a client's uh, building, like nine hours away from my home, like forty minutes away from my hotel, and the Pine Book actually came to the rescue. What I found was like when my when my when my neck was against the wall. It, it, it came through and, and everything that I actually needed to get my job done as an IT administrator, I had access to, I could find a way around that was on a, a $200 arm device. And so if that's the kind of, if that's the kind of functionality I'm getting off of a $200 computer, just imagine when pine expands to the point that they make a thousand dollar computer, how great that's going to be, you know? Oh yeah. That'll that'll be first be amazing. In line. Yeah. So uh, Ryan, what have you been doing in your, in your world this week? So I've been playing with Fedora 31 on my, I sent you a video, Noah, that you've not responded to. I'm extremely offended, but I did a <laughs> video on a Lenovo because I know how much you love Lenovo's a, and it's the IdeaPad Flex and how well it works on Linux, even in the tablet mode, A mode, all of that stuff with screen rotation. Uh, I was using Endeavor. I wanted to see if we take it out of Endeavor and put Fedora on it, could Fedora do all the things I was doing and hacking away with at with Endeavor? And the answer is, Yes, not surprisingly. So I've been playing with Fedora, enjoying it a lot. I also installed Ubuntu 19.10 on a few extra drives because Popey offered to give me a tour of landscape after hearing me talk uh, last week about it and show off all the things that Canonical's management tool can do. So I have Ubuntu on a few machines. I was surprised, though, because on my ThinkPad X1 Carbon that I installed it on, I've actually been running into issues with this install. I have issues with the wireless Intel 8260 not working, which in looking through some bug reports has apparently been a problem since like Ubuntu 16 with this card. Same issues are very similar issues. I've had issues with getting error messages, trying to update about var lib app locks. So I don't know if I just got a bad ISO or the fans are spinning constantly or what, but this Lenovo X1 Carbon, as you know, Noah is like, you could put Linux on it and it always works. That's kind of the thing. So I'm a little surprised to have run into these issues. But anyways, I'm excited. I will figure them out to have Popey show me around the landscape tool and hopefully we'll report back to everyone, you know, what I think of it. Very nice. So Michael, what have you been up to? Well, I've been doing quite a lot and there's, I've been doing a couple things that are good and, uh, and, uh, some negative things I've had to deal with for the past couple of weeks or so. So first of all, I've had some hardware issues. Last week, we talked about how I had to switch really fast on to OpenSUSE to you know, record this show. And we had a, the show was fine. It worked to no issues whatsoever, and it was, it was totally fine. Uh, and then we decided to update the system to see if I could update Tumbleweed, even though it was like four or five months old. And since Tumbleweed is a rolling distribution, it doesn't really make any sense considering it's like 1,800 packages were up, available for updates and all that stuff. So we just kind of did like on the fly in the patron post show, a test to see how well OpenSUSE would update. And I'm happy to report that it uh, it updated completely fine. There was no issues. Flawless victory. Flawless fine. And, and, and in fact, yeah. 
in the, in the update, I did we in the last week we talked about using yes as a pipe for an automatically answered yes to everything, and I decided to do that in the OpenSUSE, and OpenSUSE was like, "No, you probably shouldn't do that." So we're going to yeah. ignore Sousa that. SUSE was like, "Yeah, no, no, <laughs> yeah. no piping here, buddy." You're trying to update all these things. We're, we're going to say no to that, and uh, so it still asked me all those questions, which is good because it needed to ask me like, "Do you want to replace certain packages?" Considering you are doing this massive update, I was like, "Okay, that's fair. That's a fair decision on their part." And it still did all the updates totally fine. So I was super impressed with with uh, OpenSUSE in that because having a rolling distribution that can be ignored for months and then still be able to update without any issues and all your packages and applications still work as intended, like that is very cool. But there was a side effect to that. For some reason, like the problem that happened with my Kubuntu setup with OBS happened on the OpenSUSE version as well once I updated. So there's something to do with like the current like update of uh, the kernel or something with OBS and the way that I use OBS. So because I use OBS very extensively with the tons of scenes as they make fun of me every week about it, usually 5,996 right. so far. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of them. So it, it kind of, it creates a, an interesting memory issue that I never had until it was a recent update. So like the past week, the reason it started me switching around was that when I updated Kubuntu, it started this problem. So then I updated OpenSUSE, started the problem. So I started testing more distros to see what's happening. So I started trying out other distributions, like uh, I tried OpenSUSE and Kubuntu, but I also tried uh, Ubuntu and Pop! OS, and both of those were totally fine And when I was using the older versions of them, like when I used 19.04. Then I installed 19.10, and so the same thing just repeated, the exact same problem. So what happens is, the I even tried Manjaro, but of course it's an updated version, so kind of makes sense it would do the same thing. So the problem is that the computer starts for it's like a phantom memory leak. So the the OBS process says it's only using a certain amount, and it never increases the amount it says. And then it starts just building and building RAM until it gets to start using swap, and then it starts using all of the swap, and the system crashes. Like just because that's what happens when you have you're using all of your resources, it, the computer can't handle it, so it crashes the system in order to make sure that you don't ruin the hardware. So. I don't have any idea what's going on exactly, but I currently am using an older version of Kubuntu in order to make sure that that this OBS thing works without having to rebuild everything from scratch. So, so what you found is the oldest distro you can Not the download. oldest, no, but... Well, no, I mean, kind of in a way, because you found a very old OpenSUSE that worked with oh, no issue. You were yes. able to finish the show until you updated. Right. You found the, the LTS version of Kubuntu, so... To me, it seems like it's got to be kernel related. Yeah, it does make sense. And it's also like if I get something from 1904 and don't update the system, it'll still work. So it's somewhere between the 1910 to now, somewhere in that that field there, the update happened. And I actually did a I, I'm, I'm still doing like troubleshooting and getting all the list. So I'm going to send it to I'm going to put it on the forum for DLN forum. Hopefully some people who are like district developers can look at it and see if there's any possible way they could figure out what's going on. And I'll just provide the packages that updated before it, when it didn't have a problem, and then when it did. And hopefully that will be a way to figure out what's going on for other, anybody who else is using is having this issue. But that's not the worst news of the week, obviously, because uh, Rocket League has been discontinued for Linux because Epic Games is awful and the worst company Worse than EA by Wait far. a minute now. We don't do that to anybody. We don't talk bad about people like that straight up. 
Right, never, except, unless except it's no, Epic, Epic Games. Epic Games is garbage. Yes, yeah. unless it's Epic Games. Then they're just garbage completely. In our opinion, by the way. Well, yeah, I mean, my opinion. I mean, Epic, Epic Games is like ruining my favorite game. Wait, I, Hayden's a lawyer. Take, Can we pull it? Hayden why? on and yeah. ask if it's okay for us yeah. to call Epic Games complete garbage in our opinion? Is, are we safe there, Hayden? Can you give us a, a, a note? Oh, he says yes. We are safe to call them complete right, garbage cool. in our opinion. Awesome. And in, in my opinion, they're why complete they- garbage. <laughs> Why did they take a thing away from Linux? I can understand, like because Epic Games is ran by Tim Sweeney, and Tim Sweeney hates Linux. Because I, in in my opinion, he hates Linux. Because there's, uh, if you look at his Twitter, he's multiple times said things bad about Linux. Like there was one time he said using Linux is like someone who is an American who doesn't like U.S. political trends moving to Canada. It's like, that's that's his example. And it's like, wait, Dustin's Canadian, man. We have everybody we need right on this show. Is that true, Dustin? You don't have yeah. to answer that. No, it's question. not. So it's just yeah. it's in and he the one of the, my favorite things about what they said about why they did it and and their blog post about it was like one paragraph. Like they had very little you know transparency or just they had almost no intestinal fortitude in order to to, to deal with this. So they just made one paragraph and it was like we're we're gonna we wanted to have our the best possible experience for our gamers and that's why we're going to Windows only and because Linux we're switching to to new technologies that somehow Linux can't handle even though Linux is like the most up to date thing you could possibly get unless you have an OBS problem and then at the same <laughs> time. Uh, they say in the sense of new technologies. And then they said uh, at the bottom of that message, but don't worry if you're still using windows seven, you will still be able to play the game. So the new technologies for a system that's been deprecated by the company who makes it, but will still work because Epic games is garbage in my opinion. But with that said, I decided I was going to make a video, not only just, you know, yelling at them here, I decided to make something that was kind of like a machinima where you make uh, a movie or short film sort of in the game's engine and stuff. So I was able to get a bunch of people to help me make it. It took like five people to t- make it. It took like four days so far. I'm still working on it, but I'm about to But it's really it. good. I've seen the end result. Yeah. You need to check out Michael's channel and see this video. It's yeah. very funny. By the time you watch this show or listen to the show, it will be already available. So be sure to go check that out. Uh, it did take a long time, but yeah, I think it was worth it. And uh, let me know what you think. If uh, if I should do some more machinima stuff or whatever. But anyway, <laughs> this episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, load balancers, integrated firewalls, and so much more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. And as Ryan would say, that's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. And those tutorials are always useful. I have them. I I use them sometimes for just desktop stuff, not even cloud-based stuff. So lots of good stuff there. And you can get started on DigitalOcean for for free with a $50 or maybe $100 because that's still that thing that we talked about last week is still available by going to do.co slash dl. Again, you can get it started on DigitalOcean with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash dl. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. So one of the hot topics of the show as of late has been us questioning the benefits of WSL or the Windows subsystem for Linux, as well as PowerShell, Hyper-V, and other things as it pertains to Linux. So today we have a special guest with us to explain the other side of the story, Hayden Barnes. Hayden, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me, Michael. Really excited to be on Destination Linux. Yeah, we're, we're excited as well. So Hayden is a developer advocate of WSL and Hyper-V for Canonical, uh, the Microsoft guy at the Linux company, as his Twitter describes, and a former, a former lawyer. So we expect some great rebuttals. And I'd also like to just point out right now that I reserve the right to randomly interject with the word objection just throughout the interview for no apparent reason. Uh, Fair enough. And I reserve the right to sustain. Okay, nice. cool, cool, cool. So... Now, before we get into the WSL and Hyper-V stuff, let's talk about your journey into Linux. How did that get first get started? Okay. Um, I've been using Linux since Red Hat 5.2. Not RHEL 5.2, but the 5.2 of the original distro in 1998. It actually came with RealPlayer, uh, which was really exciting at the time. Um, I had <laughs> to recompile my own kernel to get support for my ATI Rage graphics card. Um, I also used early SUSE, Corel, Ubuntu when it came along. I compiled my own Gentoo in college. Oh, you did um, the Gentoo thing. Oh yeah, on my on my iMac G3. Uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, for punishment. I know, right? Um, I did just use Linux though. Uh, I also ran BOS. Um, I was a big BOS user and uh, Mac OS OS 10 for a long time. But I've been using some form of Linux or a Nix environment on my primary machine in virtualization or on servers all this time. Now it's interesting because a lot of people that I've only been in Linux, by the way, for going on four years now. Um, but a lot of people I meet are very much like once they install Linux, they install it on everything, right? They're pure becomes like almost a religious thing to them. You, even from the start, you kind of found Linux, you loved it, but you were even playing with other operating systems during that whole time. You didn't really see it as this is my one solution for everything type of environment. You, you just liked looking at what every operating system was doing. Yep. I uh, enjoyed running different operating systems, vintage operating systems, running them side by side. Uh, so something like WSL where you run Linux on Windows was kind of right up my alley. Yeah, that leads to my next question, because I was interested, how do you become the Microsoft guy at Linux? How did that road of, and maybe you kind of answered it there, right? Playing with all the different operating systems and then uh, having some experience with all of them. But how did you get that role? We have to go back to Penguin and then a little bit even before that. So I was thoroughly in the Apple ecosystem, Mac OS, iOS. Um, I even worked at Apple for a short time in college. I was using Pythonista, which is a Python implementation for iPad. And I thought of how useful it would be if we could have a minimalist uh, Linux or Nix kernel environment that could hook into some of the iOS, uh, like the standard iOS app APIs, just to automate tasks on the iPad. The problem was the terms of the store made it unclear if that was feasible, if that was something you could ship on the Apple App Store. Um, I contacted Apple Legal through some friends uh, in the legal community and sought clarification, never heard back. Around the same time, uh, I started growing frustrated with Apple's uh, hardware offerings. I think if you're in the Apple community, you talk about the Apple tax, which is the Apple premium you pay yeah. uh, for you know that experience and that hardware. But I, I no longer saw the justification for it in some of the hardware decisions recently, like the touch bar. And oh, yeah. uh, I like I like ports. You know, at any given time, I have like eight or ten things. That's crazy talk. You don't need any of them. Yeah. yeah, you just need dongles. Lots and lots of dongles connected into other dongles. That's the answer. Yeah. 
no. Uh, and I and I don't need like a single crumb destroying my keyboard and having to send it in. I just can't can't work like that. Um, so I bought a ThinkPad T470s. And I gave Ubuntu a try. I was a full-time lawyer at the time. And uh, unfortunately, I needed some applications that simply required Windows. So I really reluctantly tried Windows. It was basically the first time I'd used Windows since XP. Uh, And it was okay. Uh, But when I enabled WSL and, uh, you know, started picking that apart, I quickly realized this was a better terminal experience than Mac OS. And I found that Windows with WSL offered me a balance of like standard office productivity apps, gaming, and the Linux terminal environment. So I was a user at this point. Gotcha. I started uh, kind of hacking on WSL extensively, building custom images. Uh, I reversed the WSL API in Windows, and I started helping other WSL users. I was frequently breaking my... uh, image that I was working and I would have to reset it. And I was having to run my setup scripts every time to get the same optimizations, you know, each time for WSL. And I was also recommending these to other people sharing my scripts. And I thought back to my idea of a Linux terminal for iOS and thought of a WSL experience that was more usable out of the box. And that's when I approached Microsoft with my idea for a WSL specific distro and Microsoft was very enthusiastic about it. They actually, their terms on their store uh, specifically permit open source software as opposed to Apple. And that is when I created WLinux, which later became Penguin. And that was a new WSL distro uh, built on WSL with all of the most useful WSL specific customizations and optimizations out there and a helpful setup experience. The idea was that we would focus on users who were brand new to the Linux terminal, you know, beginning front end developers, students, sysadmin, um, you know, who maybe issued surface tablets that that's kind of who we were looking at at first, but mostly it was just WSL users who wanted a better distro for WSL, you know, because the other, the other distro makers had released distros for WSL, but really hadn't done any of the cool things that WSL was capable of doing. They weren't pushing the envelope. And mm. if they weren't going to, we decided to. So Interesting. we somewhat controversially asked for an upfront investment through the Microsoft store, depending on, you know, uh, when you got it, it was between six and 10 bucks. Um, but that allowed us to put paid time in by the team, provide support, and continue improving the experience. We were inspired by uh, Elementary OS um, and their pay-what-you-want model. We were also inspired by other open-source projects that have specifically used the Microsoft Store, like Krita, to fund development. I mean, thanks to sales of Krita on the Microsoft Store, they have... uh, either one or two full-time developers now working on Creta, not just for Windows on WSL, but um, Linux desktops everywhere. So I noticed this that you mentioned, and I don't want to take you off track on the story too much, but I've noticed that some open source software that, well, is just kind of open source and free plainly on Linux is charged for 
in the Microsoft store. So is that a kind of normal practice to raise money you're seeing? Because I know HexChat, I think, does it. You mentioned Krita, others. They're raising money because they're not getting it in the Linux community. Are there any thoughts on why they're charging there? Well, the terms permit it, for one. I mean, it's one of the, uh, uh, you know, we had the difficulty with the Apple App Store um, and getting clarification about those terms. But the terms of Microsoft Store specifically permit it. And um, I think it's just seen as a opportunity by the open source users, uh, the open source developers to raise funds. And, you know, I'm very interested in where Elementary OS's um, Apps Center is going. And I do think personally that app stores are one tool to improving the Linux desktop experience and to kind of solve some of these problems we've seen over the discussed over the past couple of years about how we pay developers, you know, not just the apps, but the tooling that goes into them. So interesting. Uh, I'm not, you know, prescribing that as a one size fits all model. Sure. Uh, it's just, you know, we had, a, we experimented with it. You know, it's been pretty good. So over time, the response to Penguin grew. Um, I was, I scaled back my law practice. I went uh, part-time in another firm. And then eventually over the course of about 18 months, I was able to go work on Penguin full-time. Then we were approached by members of the Fedora community and we launched Fedora Remix for WSL in the absence of an official Fedora WSL image. We were then approached by enterprise and education customers and launched Penguin Enterprise, which ran RHEL, Oracle, CentOS, and Scientific Linux on WSL. So, How many WSL a, distributions that are, that are currently existing has have, have you been a part of in some way? Three. Uh, Penguin, uh, Fedora Remix for WSL, Penguin Enterprise, and now Ubuntu, so four total. Yeah, I remember talking about uh, WLinux so, back when when you first announced, and uh, we wanted to have you on. I, I'm kind of curious, like you mentioned about having the transition from lawyer to working on WSL stuff and working on these Linux distributions and working just as a developer. How did you transition from that? Because I, I think it's really interesting that you you mentioned how you kind of like did a, a soft transition sort of, but like what gave you the incentive or just the just what gave you that reason to switch? Because it's 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 a very drastic switch, I would think. Right. Well, it was mostly by accident. Uh, I, when I released Penguin, I didn't really think a lot of people would care, but it really got traction and really developed a community around it. And then I started to have to hire developers, you know, hmm. supervise developers and oversee marketing. So it mostly accidental and forced, but generally I've always had a passion for technology and uh, working with people and I've had different jobs over the years that have leveraged those at different times in different ways. Um, in my law practice, I dabbled in some legal technology, uh, it's called legal tech, and kind of found that the legal industry wasn't really ready for that. Um, I did some tech policy work. Uh, I did a little bit of tech in politics and volunteered with the EFF and spoke at conferences on legal and technology related issues, but it really wasn't as close to the tech as I wanted to be. And I kind of found myself um, just being a developer advocate for WSL generally as a result of the success of Penguin. And because, uh, you know, we charge for Penguin, I was able to make it my full-time job. And 
actually made more money off Penguin than my law job. Um, and it opened up more doors and I pursued it. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to ask you to go back to being a lawyer because there's a rights to repair fiasco going on and we need your help to get that fixed uh, going yeah. on. Yeah, well, I've, I, I worked with the right to repair folks um, in the Georgia State Senate when I was a lawyer. So That's awesome. I love hearing yeah. that. Yeah, so that's that's a, that's a big issue. That's something I'm really enthusiastic about. Um, I also do free speech law. And so... I, I had ways to kind of mesh the practice of law and technology in some ways, uh, but it never really, those advocacy skills, those organizing people and working towards a common goal and organizing, the, c- collecting them together. And then uh, the technology is something that just hadn't come together, um, but it has now. So nice. I'm very excited uh, to have this opportunity. Do you personally use Windows leveraging WSL or are you on a straight Linux distro? So uh, on my two primary machines, my ThinkPad and my Go, I use Windows um, with Ubuntu WSL. Mm -hmm. Uh, Depending on what project I'm working on, sometimes I'll fire up a Ubuntu Hyper-V image um, or multi-pass instance. I also dual boot both devices to check hardware compatibility on pre-release versions of Ubuntu. Make sure people who do use that full-time on my devices uh, won't run into any issues. And then I also host my uh, blog and my Gopher server on Ubuntu. So when you started, you've explained how you kind of got into Linux. It sounds like you're more of an open source guy than a Windows guy. And, you know, I, I, I guess when I think about the target audience for somebody for WSL, right, it's somebody who wants to stay on Windows, but needs a Linux tool set to do part of their job. And it doesn't sound like you fit that mold. I'm curious, where did your passion for WSL come from? So it goes back to my interest in operating systems and hybrid systems and virtualization and kind of making operating systems do things that they might not necessarily initially be intended to do. So it's it's that overlap. And it's... Um, I enjoy the challenge of bridging the communities. That is something that I like doing as a lawyer, which was kind of finding common ground, uh, working with people and helping people accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. Um, So it's technically up my alley from that history of operating systems, virtualization, and it's philosophically up my alley because I enjoy bringing people together so much. You mentioned earlier about Mac OS and its store and some of its, you know, basic closed gardenness that made it so you couldn't use Penguin on this. Would that have been a target for you had Mac actually been open in their store? Had they allowed people to have terms and conditions that allowed people to do things like you were trying? Would that have been your first target before Windows at, since that was the platform you were on? At the time, yes. If it's interesting. Apple- if Apple had made hardware that I liked and had opened the terms on the iOS side, I probably would still be thoroughly in Apple uh, ecosystem. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because they're missing out on a lot of opportunities because of that closed garden that they have. And, you know, frankly, I don't see, maybe they exist, but I sure don't see a ton of Mac servers and things out there outside of people doing, you know, photography or rendering or that type of thing. 
And you wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that, you know, people like yourself aren't able to do unique things like integration with other operating systems that are meant for or are performed really well on servers in their ecosystems. I think that's an interesting point. Well, I mean, the macOS ecosystem doesn't really have a CI CD system that you can use out of the box because, you know, they deprecated macOS server and server hardware. So I just felt really restricted by that, that ecosystem and was able to unlock so much more kind of taking the best of windows and the best of Linux in my whole personal approach to technology. Gotcha. So do you think you could maybe give us a peek sort of into what your day-to-day responsibilities might look like as a developer advocate for WSL, you know, pull that curtain back, give us kind of a hint what goes on day-to-day? Sure. So picking up where I left off uh, with my story, our goal was to make WSL be taken seriously by the distro makers. And if they weren't, we were going to. But we somewhat succeeded in that we got Canonical's attention. And Canonical approached me and asked me to come over and work on Ubuntu on WSL. And I agreed because it gave me a much larger platform and more resources to advance the WSL experience. Mm. Um, And I, I handed the reins of Penguin off to one of the senior engineers on that team to kind of maintain that independent uh, social contract that Penguin has between its users who, you know, have paid for it and, and fund future development and products they, that we had had in the pine block pipeline, they've since uh, shipped raft, which is the GUI manager for WSL from Penguin is really fantastic. And I came to canonical. I've been here four months. Uh, my job includes um, traveling and speaking at conferences like uh, Linux Fest Northwest, Texas Linux Fest. Um, I'm planning WSL Conf, which is the first WSL-specific uh, tech conference happening in March. Uh, I participate in Canonical's regular planning and engineering sprints. I guide development on WSL and Hyper-V for Ubuntu. Uh, I meet and act as a uh, intermediary between various teams uh, at Microsoft on WSL and Hyper-V-related projects and our engineers. I have regular one-on-one sessions with developers, kind of uh, as developers who've done kind of interesting things on WSL. I reach out to them and set up interviews where I just kind of talk to them about what they're doing, figure out what the challenges they're facing, what's working for them, what we can improve. I also blog. Um, I'm active on social media. I triage bug reports and I get to appear on podcasts. Can I just make a point here that this is what makes... This is what Canonical does so brilliantly in my mind is they go for the grassroots approach time and time again. When you go into our Telegram group, a bunch of people there from all different thoughts and things, but you'll notice Popey's in there, other Canonical employees are in there talking, chatting. They're all a part, even in our discourse, they show up there like, and they do this with all podcasts and shows and things. They show up, they answer questions, they do the grassroots thing better than anybody else, I think, out there. They they make sure they're there. They don't expect. It reminds me a lot of Linux distros and things. It seems like the whole website when somebody's like, hey, I've got this great idea. Okay, how are you going to get it out there so the world knows? I'm going to create a website. Okay, and then what? And they stop at the website part. 
But Canonical seems to understand, hey, you've got to get the word out. You've got to go talk to people. You've got to get people in with developers. I think it's really interesting that they have you, you know, going around and doing that grassroots approach for them because it's a very effective tactic that, frankly, they're one of the best at. It's, uh, I love being on the advocacy team at Ubuntu. Um, in fact, uh, we are hiring for a Snap Advocate for interested parties. So check the uh, Canonical job boards. Awesome. Do you find yeah. a lot of your advocacy goes more towards uh, like kind of the corporate side of things or end users or where do you find that you're getting the most interaction? So most of my individual interaction are kind of the first level, you know, first tier engineers kind of doing the work. Mm-hmm. We are working on kind of some, some guides and tools and features that will make WSL, especially Ubuntu on WSL function better in the enterprise because what happens is we attract the individual users and then we attract the professional users and the professional users start putting pressure on decision makers, their CIO, their CTO. And then those folks are also hearing things about WSL in the trade press and from Microsoft and from Canonical and um, thinking about how they adopt WSL into their kind of mixed ecosystems that they, most companies have, you know, some sort of combination of windows, you know, Microsoft and and Linux. One of the things we're working on this year is kind of providing them the tools they need. Um, But in terms of my day to day, it's almost always individual developers, individual sysadmins, that kind of thing. Interesting. That's it. Yeah, that's interesting. We've heard that there are a couple employees that are full-time employees at Canonical that work on WSL. Are those resources paid for by Canonical or is uh, Microsoft funding it in some way? So we have myself, a developer advocate. We have a full-time engineering position that we are in the final uh, interview rounds for. And then we have a program manager that we share, Sohini Roy, with uh, a couple other projects within um, Canonical. Those are paid for by Canonical. We see uh, Ubuntu on WSL and Hyper-V um, on a path towards uh, generating revenue for Canonical. So those are investments for Canonical in the platform. When you say it generates revenue for Canonical, and what exactly, how does this, I, I get like Krita, how that makes money. I get, you know, because they charge something for it, but how does the WSL get Canonical funds? So generally, uh, we want to bring users into the Ubuntu ecosystem. Um, we want them to develop for Ubuntu in the cloud, Ubuntu on robotics, Ubuntu on IoT. We want to you know, get them in the door with WSL, maybe show them multi-pass, that may be a better option for them, show them Hyper-V uh, so that they can deploy Linux services in their you know, otherwise predominant Microsoft ecosystem. And then eventually, they're going to want support and additional gotcha. features that Canonical provides. So. We have Ubuntu Advantage that provides uh, the live hot patching, the uh, extended support maintenance. If you know your application is still based on Python two, but you, you don't want to give up on it yet, you know we provide Ubuntu Pro on Amazon that comes with all of that. The Amazon Cloud comes with all of that pre-configured, so when you spin that up, it's all ready to go. So we hope to see uh, enterprise customers engage with us and help us deploy Ubuntu on WSL in their enterprise. And and they'll need some assistance with that. We have a lot of companies who come specifically to Canonical to help them manage their Linux ecosystem. Some, you know, in-house that we 
continue to maintain for them uh, on a contract basis. So we could see that with Ubuntu on WSL as well. How many full-time employees, if, if you know, does Microsoft have dedicated to this project? So uh, they, Microsoft is much smaller than it used to be and is much more nimble. So the teams are very small. Uh, there's a WSL team, there's a terminal team, and it's only a handful of engineers. Everything else, you know, in terms of packaging, pushing to the store, what goes into the distro, how it's built, what, you know, the package selection, the default settings, all of that is decided by us. The only thing that the WSL team would do would be to help us support uh, the platform that we hook into. So some of these examples might include, um, you know, like a obscure non-standard system call that an application is making that like the kernel kind of just accommodates, but is non-standard and needs to be parsed differently uh, by the WSL layer. And then we, we work with them to f- patch that. And then another example would be, uh, so we recently enabled some hardening settings um, at build time in GZIP for focal and the hardening settings broke. Uh, it, it created a non-standard elf binary header that broke the parser in WSL. So we asked Microsoft to fix that and they did. And then they backported that fix to existing versions of windows, which is not an insignificant feat. Um, It requires a lot of work to backport that to existing rings of windows and they do. So some people are confused, including myself. I I would put myself, this is why we have you on here that we've got a trillion dollar company we're paying resources to build WSL on their platform, which it's confusing even in my four years in Linux because of the idea that, you know, we've pretty much been the competitor or tried to be a competitor and now we're, we're kind of merging worlds. So I think a lot of people are probably dealing with this idea. But what do you say to those that, you know, Canonical has a fantastic operating system, a lot of people's favorite choice, uh, out there, but it's got a lot of bugs still, right? If it's not the perfect desktop environment, not that there's any others out there that are, and they've got three developers on their small team helping a trillion dollar company with WSL. What is your thought on that? So uh, I have a few thoughts. One, Microsoft isn't making their own Linux. They are using our Linux and we want them to continue using our Linux. Two, you know, Linux is a lot more than desktop, it's server, it's IOT, it's cloud, it's robotics. And uh, desktop is great, you know, uh, I dual boot, um, I use Linux GUI apps, you know, alongside my others. I want to see Linux desktop continued. You know, I like the competition between the two. You know, the other thing is that in open source, you do have a lot of these weird relationships, right? So. Ubuntu obviously competes with RHEL, but Ubuntu Canonical also packages Ubuntu for IBM Cloud, you know, and... Yeah, but like uh, Red Hat and Canonical help each other in many ways, and neither one of them have ever said your other system is a cancer. So there's that kind of problem. Well, there's, there is fierce competition in the enterprise space for enterprise Linux, and, and Canonical competes with Oracle and RHEL and uh, 
of Insusa. And at the same time, they also collaborate on other projects. And, you know, for example, at WSLConf, we are going to have a presentation um, from Nuno, who's a WSL community member, on Microcates, which is a canonical project. But we also invited Rancher Labs, and they're making that work on WSL. So in open source, there's sometimes a lot of these, uh, even in our collaborations with Microsoft, we recognize there are other projects that the other company is working on that competes with other projects we're working on. But in the meantime, we have this opportunity to, to provide users who wouldn't otherwise install desktop Linux, who might not otherwise pay for a VPS, to get them into the Linux ecosystem, get them using open source tools, teach them how to use the terminal, how to use these things, and then go from there. And, you know, our goal, and we've seen evidence to suggest this, that people then do go install desktop Ubuntu. They do then use server. They do then use their tools to build on Ubuntu in the cloud. And when they do that, you know, when there's more Ubuntu VMs running, uh, when there's more investment, that means more Linux system administrator jobs, more enterprise investment in Linux. There's more, you know, people free to do the side projects that we all have in the Linux space. And I just don't see it as a zero sum. I see it as this, you know, we have this big pie of Linux where, you know, we have desktop, we have server, we have IoT robotics. And now we just have this extra sliver that is this WSL thing and I don't see it as taking anything away from desktop Linux. What about the fact that there's there's people who are sysadmins who have been wanting to use Linux tools, but they they didn't want to switch away because they their company didn't allow it, and then oh now I can just use these tools and never have to bother. So like that's this that slither yes, but like pretty much IoT and servers are already dominated by Linux. And the only thing that's not dominated is the desktop. So by there's arguments that says that Microsoft doing this allows them to keep that dominance rather than losing anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, I understand the argument. I mean, I do. Uh, I don't want to dismiss it. Um, I just don't, I don't see WSL as a threat to desktop Linux. I see WSL as a threat to Mac OS more than desktop Linux. Well, let me ask you this question. Does Canonical have any sort of insight or ideas of how maybe the WSL partnership might actually drive something back to the desktop Linux in some sort of capacity, whether it's new users? Do they have any sort of plan to help drive that back to the desktop in any capacity, or is it completely an enterprise play? So it's not completely an enterprise play. It's a developer play, and it's to bring those developers into the broader ecosystem. And um, what was your first, first part of your question again? Well, I was just curious because uh, we we touched previously on some of the benefits back and forth between Microsoft and Canonical, but I'm curious whether Canonical has seen a way to maybe leverage this partnership to maybe drive some additional, whether it's developers back to the ecosystem of helping on the desktop or maybe even gaining users or just do they see any sort of benefit on the desktop side of Linux or have they sort of you know, looked elsewhere more towards, as you mentioned, the IoT, the enterprise, the cloud sort of realm, I guess, or, right. or do they have a desktop type play? Well, it, it brings users, it, you know, it lets them experiment with Ubuntu in this terminal environment on hardware and software they don't necessarily have to move off of initially. And then 
we hope and know that many of them move on to other forms of Ubuntu, including desktop Linux. And we also know that being invited into companies to help manage uh, WSL will also give us an opportunity to showcase our desktop offering. So it's it's a beachhead, right? It's it's a it's it's something we're we're, we're staking a claim, and we're saying Ubuntu is going to you know be the leader on WSL, and we will you know kind of see where it goes. But in the, right now, it's it's about bringing people into the ecosystem. So we're we're building the enterprise story over time. But mostly it's about, you know, some people who are just stuck. Their enterprise won't let them move on. They're, they're thoroughly enmeshed. I think a lot of people underestimate uh, the dominance of, like, Active Directory and um, within the Microsoft, you know, ecosystem and Microsoft deployments and how, how tough it is to break that. But by introducing Linux through WSL, we can begin to kind of chip away at that. Oh, Let I me can ask- actually see that. I come from an enterprise background. I've actually fought those fights many times on my own, so I can sort of see where you're going with that. I, I'm just curious, how, what is the path to... Okay, so you have a Microsoft shop, 150,000 workstations are there, and they're doing some v- development work, and so they go, oh, this is fantastic. We used to have to spin up VMs, or we were working in VirtualBox, or uh, you know, we were using Putty and had a development cluster, but now we're able to do this right on our, our Windows. And so, okay, that's great. We've brought people into the ecosystem, is taking your words. H- how does that translate into people actually dumping Windows and moving towards Linux. I mean, they've got it built into Windows. I, I, I see that part, and I can see how that's massively beneficial to these places that are entrenched inside of Windows. But do we not remove the, hey, if I want to use these really powerful tools, I'm going to reinstall Linux on my laptop? I mean, the whole reason Dell launched the XPS line was because they had this flock of developers that couldn't get any work done because, the you know, for one reason or another, they weren't happy with Apple and there was no real offering on Microsoft Windows. And so Dell, Barton George sat down in a, in a room with people and said, here's what I want to do. And they went, how many laptops did you sell? He gave them a number. They said, we sell that in one day in Windows laptops. And you think you'll sell worldwide. That's how many Linux laptops you'll sell. So the, and that's, the kind of, that's the kind of thing he was up against. And when they started to sell them, it turns out developers went crazy over them because finally you could get actual support for this thing that ran the operating system that you needed. And I guess my concern is that we're going to quickly approach a a point in where people are just going to say, well, this is good enough. I mean, I can get my work done and, and, and there's a lot of work. And obviously I think Microsoft will be very motivated to put money into this where it's necessary. Um, You look over at Google, same, same situation, right? They had a lot of people that were running on Chromebooks and, and MacBooks and none of them could get any work done. And so they were SSHing into their Linux boxes. And I'm just, I'm a little worried. Does that not give Microsoft a major, major, major foot up in the, as Ryan put it at the beginning of the interview, the competition? I, I understand the concern. And, you know, are we making Windows better by letting people use Linux on it? In the short term, yes. In the short term, WSL does make WS, you know, make Windows better and you know, could result in people not switching from Windows to Ubuntu that might otherwise. We're taking the long game, though. We see WSL 
as that initial foothold. And we, you know, want to introduce other products and services within deployments, you know, that complement and bridge gaps. So we're increasingly seeing mixed ecosystems, you know, where people are deploying Windows Server and Linux servers side by side. And we're kind of approaching that now with the desktop, you know, with VMs and WSL. And I think as Ubuntu desktop continues, there, this will result in more uptake of Ubuntu desktop. And to be honest, Windows is not a huge priority for Microsoft anymore. I mean, it's great, but it is a small fraction of what Microsoft is focused on. I mean, they provide it as a development platform and, and, and license it to enterprise for devices, but it's tough. Uh, you know, these issues are complicated and I certainly see your point. Does that answer your question? I feel like I'm not yeah, quite Yeah, there. it does. It, it does. I, I mean, essentially what we get oftentimes, and you're not dodging the question, so I appreciate it. What we get oftentimes is all oh, that's not going to happen. People are going to come to Linux. This is the first step in bringing people into, and I, I just, I don't buy it, right? Like I, I really think that in from what I've seen, in working with large businesses and particularly large businesses that they, they don't care what technology they're using. Frankly, they just want the tools to work. And so they go for the path of least resistance and the path of least resistance happens to be oftentimes the cheapest path. And so you, you find organizations that will, that will fall into that. And so when I, I, it's comforting, believe it or not, to hear somebody say, yeah, you know what? There are going to be organizations that are going to say, you know what? We're 150,000 clients deep into Windows, and that's where we're going to stay. And it's great that we don't have to switch over to Linux now because it's available to us. I mean, that's the honest answer, right? And then and then, then we can have an honest and forward discussion about, well, how is that beneficial to the Linux community? Because now you have 150,000 Windows users that are filing bug tickets in Linux and are paying attention to what's going on and are contributing both financial support and technical support and know-how and becoming a part of the community. And if they ever want to make that transition from Windows over to Linux, well, guess what? Their entire infrastructure that they've been working on is just a pick up and, and plug over in the Linux world that the terminal that they have been that they have been essentially emulating uh, is now available to them natively. So I, I, re I appreciate the answer. I think it's very honest. It's just, I think that's what some of us are really concerned about is that I think that's a real function. We had FFmpeg. It was a great, uh, it was a great tool, one of the most professional, awesome tools ever to exist for uh, media transcoding. And what happened? It got ported to macOS and it got ported to Windows. And now FFmpeg is not something that is Linux specific. It is just a really great tool that everybody has access to. And the open source side of me loves that. And the Linux advocate side of me hates that because I know that that comes at a cost. You also may be comforted to know that we're thoroughly situated within the desktop you know, division at uh, Ubuntu. And mm -hmm. we're part of the desktop conversations as well. Um, that 150,000 uh, deployment uh, company, you know, are, what we want to happen is them come to us for assistance deploying that. Mm -hmm. And then we can dedicate support and engineers to that. And you're right, then have that participation and those bug patches go back into upstream. So with Penguin, we know when I was building Penguin, I frequently submitted uh, upstream bug reports to Debian. When we built Fedora Remix, uh, I built uh, submitted patches to Fedora. With Penguin Enterprise, I worked with Oracle to patch a bug in RPM. So it, there, there are you know upstream 
benefits even from this off, you know, this strange kind of sliver of the Linux world. Are there any stats that show the popularity of WSL, whether this has contributed to adoption of Ubuntu outside of Windows? I mean, as, as I think we could both agree, there's probably a lot of people that are going to come into the Windows world, that are sitting down the Windows world, they try WSL, and all of a sudden, they're not a massive shop that's entrenched. They're a 10, 15-person development shop, and they walk into the boss's office because he's only down the hallway, and they say, listen, buddy, this WSL thing, it's great, but like, you know what? I spent all my time in WSL. Why don't we just get a contract with Canonical, get Ubuntu on some machines from Dell and, and start running with it. And I think when that, I, I think those are the places where we are going to see some serious on-ramping. Um, but are there any metrics to back that up or is that just my speculation? So we recently passed a very big milestone in Ubuntu on WSL adoption. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be announcing that. Um, that has been something I've been working on within Canonical since I joined and first saw the numbers. And you I won't said, give we, us the sneak peek, your favorite podcast. I mean, I hate <laughs> to put those words in your mouth, but we can't have a sneak peek. Oh, no. Can you whisper it into our ear the day before it comes out so that we're looking for it? How about that? Can we make that yeah. exception? All right, dude. All right, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tip off the DL community. Thank so. you very much. <laughs> yep. yep. But we've passed a major milestone and we're starting to get stories. So from, from clients, from users, about big things that have happened as a result of WSL. So uh, the EA uh, shop Dice, which makes the Frostbite engine, which powers uh, Madden, FIFA, uh, Star Wars Galaxies 2, you know, about a dozen other AAA titles. Yeah. They, um, they were a Windows Visual Studio shop. That's what they built everything in. And when they were building, when they came time to build the online server application, that was kind of their default. But they wanted to build that on Linux so it could scale. So their developers um, used the Visual Studio integration uh, with WSL and ported their server to Linux. And all of those games are now run on the cloud on Linux. So that's more Linux VMs, that's more Linux uh, system administrators, more Linux investment. By these are multi-million dollar you know, deals that, that go into these games. So these stories are starting to tell us that WSL is actually bringing big projects over into the Linux ecosystem. So they may not necessarily be the desktop apps that fans of desktop Linux want right away, but that will have long-term effects, I so, think. So one of our patrons asked a really interesting question that leads into a question that, that I have as well is, will this lead to more games being playable on Linux? He asked, because we've seen this happen with Google Stadia. We've seen this happen with multiple cloud services where they're like, hey, yeah, we develop games with Linux. We've, we have our whole infrastructure running Linux, but none of the games work on Linux desktop. So is there any hope to kind of uh, bridge that gap there with this work and partnership? So, I mean, if you have dev shops that are learning Linux, I mean, that will certainly open that possibility. So I don't see a direct path. And, you know, in terms of WSL itself, uh, you know, I know some of the concerns are this may replace Ubuntu desktop, 
But WSL, for example, currently can't run games. Like it has no 3D acceleration. It has no audio support unless you build Pulse Audio for Windows and link them. So it may long-term in terms of introducing C++ developers who write a lot of games, who use Visual Studio, which is used for a lot of games, to Linux, who now will be able to cross-compile with Visual Studio their games for Linux and Windows at the same time. So it's, it's a long-term project. I mean, it, it will have trickle-down effects over time. Yeah. So like step, step one would be the getting them to use the servers to like kind of do an infrastructure thing. Step two is to get them to stop banning players who use Linux. It's an interesting so. strategy, right? And it, it's a risky one. When I think about the idea that Linux was finally getting to the point where people were having to take it seriously because they needed to get into the cloud. There was no option when you say there were people, because I, I was reading some developer forums getting ready for this, actually looking in through the community and talking with them. And they're like, yeah, I used to have a separate Linux box. Now I just have my Windows and my WSL. And I think, you know, they had to have that separate Linux box to do their cloud work and things like that. Now they don't. We're taking a huge leap that all of a sudden all these people are just going to be like, hey, uh, I'm going to go back to that separate box now because I've just enjoyed my time in WSL and not just say, well, we know WSL 2 is coming out. We know 3D acceleration and things you talked about will eventually be in there. Maybe that's not the plan right now, but come on. Are they really going to switch to going back to that separate box or just stay in Windows where everything works? Uh, and that that's the frustration in, in that I see is it's a big risk we're taking. It's It's a huge leap to say we're going to get from here all the way and circle back to people using Linux independently. I think the future really is that we're betting on is Linux is a tool with inside Windows. True. And, and I see the risk. And we all, you know, I was around for Microsoft in the 90s too. We all remember Microsoft and <laughs> uh, what that was like. And we can talk about how my opinions have changed on Microsoft. We're going to get there for sure. Yeah. But um, there's limitations in WSL that don't replace desktop. There's, you know, what I see is a spectrum. You know, you see, you have WSL, you have multi-pass, you have Hyper-V, and then you have bare metal, you know, for, in terms of development and user workstations, that's, that's the spectrum. And I want users to have the options and to have the best um, tool for the job. You know, I use all four of those things and I want those users to then use other Ubuntu products like Ubuntu Server, Juju, uh, Maz, Landscape. I want them to, you know, go to their employers and say, let's deploy this. Let's work with Canonical. Maybe we need to run some desktop workstations in order mm-hmm. to support this. Um, and I just, I just don't see it as the same zero sum game anymore that, that, you know, is is fair because that it was very much a, a you know that for a long time, and I do I, I think a lot of WSL users are going to have other devices with with Linux on them, and um, you know I I just I, I see it. Yeah, as, I have know, no doubt that there's going to be people commenting like, "Hey, I'm one of those people Hayden's talking about where I've got the separate Linux box, even though I have to use WSL at work." I just it's it you know I think you see it. You talked about 
some of the things we are all thinking, right? Windows in the nineties, where it's all gotten here. It's just a, it's a, it's an interesting risk, a calculated but risk can, being taken. Can I just, can I, I just want to jump in and just ask. Not, 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 you can't jump in unless you, ins- I insist that you use objection. Objection. What changed? I mean, that's really the question I, I have is, you know, like, so you, uh, we all acknowledge what happened in the 90s, even into the 2000s. I mean, Linux was a cancer. I mean, this was, it, I mean, it was so bad. So what, what changed there? I mean, was it, was it a culture thing? Was it a technical thing? Was it a people just stopped caring thing? What, what changed? Uh, at Microsoft? Yeah. Um, so Microsoft has kind of undergone a profound cultural change. It is much smaller and more nimble than it used to be. And this road towards open source for Microsoft began really about 70 years ago. Some of their first, you may remember CodePlex. Do you remember CodePlex, their first attempt at a Mm -hmm. GitHub competitor? You know, so they have begun dabbling, you know, in this quite some time ago. But it's been a cultural change largely under Satya Nadella, the new CEO of Microsoft. And yeah. there are teams within Microsoft. I mean, and the other thing is Microsoft is not monolithic. It's incredibly complex organizations with different right. people headquartered in different countries in the world with different styles. But there are teams within Microsoft that have fully embraced open source. And there are teams that are still coming around. And it's a smart business decision for Microsoft, especially a smaller Microsoft oh, yeah. uh, for a cloud-based Microsoft. I mean, it's good for any company, open source. But for me, it was also, a big part of it was the response we got from Microsoft versus Apple. Just from my time as someone who did a lot of stuff on on Apple and, and submitted bug reports that just went unanswered for years. <laughs> and um, you... The thing with Microsoft now is like I, I know the person to go to for that feature. Uh, it's a lot like Ubuntu, you know, canonical that way, um, where you know I can go talk to the engineer. <laughs> so and and they're much more welcoming and and open, and they tend to be more candid. I've gotten to know uh, members of several teams at Microsoft, you know, and and it's not like I I went for them right away. Like I didn't fall for it, uh, anything. Um, I was really skeptical at first, very cautious, you're on alert, right? So for potential, because we were there, right, in the 90s. And it, it does seem to have gone through a profound cultural change for the better. And I can't predict where Microsoft will be in 10 years. Yeah. But right now, it seems to be good, right? And it's doing things that signal they have the right intentions. So they're not cannibalizing open source projects for their, I mean, some things are debatable, but you're, you're not seeing like, for example, what Amazon does to some open source projects when they sure. kind of grab them, wrap them up and put them on AWS. Uh, Azure, Azure tends to be a little bit more cooperative uh, and collaborative. I see Microsoft fighting for user privacy and open source software all the way to the Supreme Court. 
I mean, they used to use the Supreme Court. To Can you expand on that? Wait. Because Microsoft and <laughs> privacy, it just makes me completely cringe because I think of Prism and NSA and the metadata. Win- Windows and 10 telemetry. All of these things. So when you <laughs> yeah. say they're fighting for this, I'm like, what, what news article did I miss here? Expand on that. So Mike, a few years ago, Microsoft um, basically fought the U.S. Department of Justice on whether or not they could get to email hosted uh, on Microsoft servers um, without going through the proper processes. At one point, Microsoft moved all of their email hosting to Ireland to keep it out of the hands of the Whoa. U.S. government from scooping it up. Yeah, and they fought that all the way to the Department of Justice, all the way to the Supreme Court against the Department of Justice, right? Did they win? They reached a compromise, but it ultimately, <laughs> but it ultimately <laughs> resulted in more user privacy for millions of people just tangentially. Well, more user privacy against the government, but still collected and scanned because of Microsoft. So like, eh, kinda. You'd be surprised how little telemetry Microsoft gets from users. Most users uh, turn it off and they actually have, because they get so little telemetry, they have to do certain things to get representative samples of what users are I just want to be clear. So most you're talking about the Windows 10 telemetry? Yeah. Yeah, they don't get a lot of te- they don't get much telemetry at all. Most users uh, at the default I just want to make sure I'm understanding. Most users at the default screen where all those little tick boxes are checked on most users all 26 through, of them. Tur- yeah, they go through and turn all those off. Yeah, so and they um, and they repeatedly turn them off when the updates turn them back on. Well, you on. can't first of all, let's be clear. You can't turn them all off. And I'm not we're not trying to do a gotcha Hayden, but you can't turn them all off and one of them goes to basic, but you're saying when you I think a couple of them are like basic or not full or something like that. You're saying basically when they you go into that mode, the amount of data they're getting is not as much as people are thinking they're getting, right? No, it's it's okay. it's it's very it's negligible. Um, so why don't they share that? I know you're not they, a Microsoft representative, so you can't really answer that. But they I'm do. hoping they, they they do. And if and if and and if, this if, is exactly what we grab. This is what we're taking. We're not doing nothing more versus the kind of lawyer talk that they you get in their you know right. well, instead. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, if, if you talk to the right people, you know, and if you go into some of the Microsoft employees who are replying on Twitter to to, to critics, it, it's it's mentioned there. Okay. Um, you know, we also see metrics through the Microsoft Store, but we limit those metrics so that we only see um, certain crashes from insiders. But we only get a few of those. So we and we get very limited data back from our users, as as does Microsoft. So you know, when it came when we when we passed this recent milestone, it actually was some work to go and actually verify and make sure everything matched up with Microsoft's numbers. Because Since they they're some- getting very little info, can you put a plug in their ear to just turn it off for us, and then we can all be sitting here celebrating? <laughs> it would be a remark. It would be a remarkable PR thing for them to just say, Hayden you know, what? Be it the turned hero out it wasn't, the world need. It wasn't really that useful to us, so we just killed it. It would be uh, like the. It would be like taking the Amazon icon off, right? The, yeah. the Ubuntu doc, just yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the telemetry uh, to Microsoft is very useful. Um, they they do make changes based on the telemetry. Ironically, they use Postgres SQL on Ubuntu to process that telemetry. So it's... Uh, <laughs> I'm glad open source can power there. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. 
So obviously many people still remain skeptical of Microsoft and their statements about loving Linux and open source and all that. Sure. Right. Uh, and it was kind of funny in the, in the patron chat when Noah asked the question of like, what's changed in Microsoft and, and NecoJet in the, in the chat said, Balmer went to the Clippers. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that, that's probably what the, the main thing is. Uh, but you, you've you worked with the people at Microsoft and just kind of give us like your assessment about the experience with working with them. Everyone uh, I've worked with at Microsoft is exceptionally professional. Almost all of them are enthusiastic about open source and Linux. Uh, everyone is focused on, you know, they they see the emerging kind of hybrid world where Windows and Linux are going to have to play along. And I have seen a genuine culture change towards open source. I feel like the default for most new projects now at Microsoft is open source. For example, like the new Power Toys for Windows, which includes a tiling window manager and some other cool things. Like they, they just open source. There are so default. many good ideas I see going into Windows now that we're in Linux. That, you know, that, that's a- that part actually scares me because I look at PowerShell and there. Uh, listen, this week preparing for this interview, I've been playing with Windows and WSL and Hyper-V and all of these things we're talking about today. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, my jaw was on the ground half the time with how good this stuff is, how easy it is to set up, how powerful things like PowerShell are that include things for new users and developers that include GUIs as you're typing commands that pop up to tell you what the command might be, mm-hmm. a lookup function on the right, an IDE built into it. There are They're now doing tabbed abilities and dropdowns and things that we've had in Linux forever. And I looked at it though and went, my God, Microsoft is brilliant. They're, they're taking all the best stuff that makes Linux a great developer platform and they're slowly integrating it into their services and making their services the reason why, I mean, Microsoft loving Linux, okay. I mean, I think it's a great marketing thing, but I think Microsoft had to acknowledge Linux. Everybody has had to. Yeah. But they're slowly building. They're not like saying, hey, just use the Linux terminal here. They're building their tools to mimic, it seemed like to me, our tools more than just integrate our tools. Almost like Linux is a band-aid until they can get their stuff caught up. What are your thoughts on that? So I think we won. And I think we're going to continue to win in terms of Linux and open source. I mean, for example, the new Windows terminal required them to open source uh, con host, console host process in Windows, which is a core uh, component of Windows. And so we've already started seeing them kind of unlock and open source some. So of when you say we win, you really mean, and this is interesting because I think about this, open source wins, right? Because they're yeah. having to open source their interesting. And, uh, you know, we're introducing users to these concepts. And some of these users are then going to see Ubuntu and be like, oh, wow, <laughs> Ubuntu has this too, you know? And I see what you mean. I understand the skepticism. We're going to capture people who wouldn't otherwise install desktop. We're going to capture people who aren't interested in desktop, who are really just interested in Ubuntu on server and and other platforms. And Microsoft, the number one driver of revenue at Microsoft right now is Azure. And Azure Mm -hmm. is built built largely with open source. And that's kind of define the priorities for the company. Right. 
Well, let's we talk about some of these tools like Hyper-V and, and the experience that Ryan had and how great it was. With Ubuntu coming as one of the default operating systems, some see this as a reason not to use Linux directly. And maybe others might think that it leads to more exposure. Like, have you had any sort of feedback on that or people chatting to you about that online? Yeah, so I want to back up one second and mention that um, PowerShell is available for Linux. It's a growing community. There's applets available for Linux, and we're actually having them come to WSLConf. So we're also having, um, there's some very popular Windows tools from sysinternals, like ProcDump and other debugging tools that Microsoft has ported to Linux. So we are seeing tools from the Windows ecosystem make their way back into the Linux ecosystem. For example, I know the PowerShell team on Linux at Microsoft uses Ubuntu Mate, which makes my boss, Martin, very happy. <laughs> so, and um, there, there are tools that are coming back, you know, that are coming back into the Linux ecosystem. So I, didn't, I wanted to mention those. Um, what, remind me of your question again. But with them even coming back, do you see people actually adopting them, right? Like it's one thing for the applications to start making their way back, but are people actually using them or are people still sort of being like, oh, it's from Microsoft. I don't really want to touch it. Or are people excited about it? Like, There's a, there's a little bit of that, but you know, people who like PowerShell for some reason really love PowerShell and they want to use it on Linux too. And um, you know, there are some Linux users who, who like the paradigms available in PowerShell. So... Uh, yeah, I'm seeing the PowerShell on Linux community gain gain some adoption. You know, and in terms of does this disincentivize desktop Linux? No, because I think people who are going to install desktop Linux and can install desktop Linux are going to, you know, on their on their personal devices, and um, you know, and they may not be, or they may not be able to. Maybe they just don't have the hardware support in in the device they currently have, but some users, you know, who would have had to install desktop Linux or VirtualBox or pay for a shell account won't have to now. That's that's true. But you know, we also be, we also don't have to require new users to learn partitioning. You know, what if we just showed them the power of the terminal first and and hook them there instead of potentially leaving them with a machine they tried to set up to dual boot and and their grub is broken. And, and now they're going to wipe it and reinstall Windows and just write Linux off as too hard to use. So that is the opportunity that I see. So you said your boss is Martin. Mm-hmm. Oh, rest. my gosh. Okay, so does he make you sit there and read manuals all day? We have this thing going back and forth about manuals. What is it like working for Martin? Do you have to read manuals nonstop? Answer the question. Don't, don't dodge this question. No. no? Oh, come on. I figured that was kind of like a yeah. prerequisite to working. I, I, for yeah, I thought that was like with your coffee, you also read manuals. Like that's just. Did you know your morning. boss put me in the release notes of Mate stating I don't read manuals? That's great. <laughs> what? That's great. What are you talking about? <laughs> the greatest troll ever pulled off, by the way. Yeah, yeah. No, working for Martin is great, and being on the team with Popey is really great. Um, it's like my own personal Ubuntu podcast. Uh, <laughs> and, but um, you know, I, you know, for example, I also maintain snaps. You know, a few snaps. I You're not going to work with Popey and not be maintaining some snaps, I imagine. <laughs> no, yeah. no, yeah, exactly. So, and we're working with Microsoft to snap, snap more stuff. So, we'll we'll have more more stuff coming 
onto the Linux desktop from Microsoft in the coming months. So awesome. Yeah. What, uh, what misconceptions do you hear that you want to clarify about WSL and Hyper-V? The biggest, I think, concern is, is a historical concern based on Microsoft. And that is that they would in some way supplement Linux in a way that would give them a foothold that they could use to control hmm. the experience. And um, I, I just have to tell people, Microsoft has never told us what to include or not include in a distro. They've never uh, you know, encouraged us to choose one technology over another. Um, they have been remarkably hands-off and kind of allowed us to come into their ecosystem and, and plant this flag and create this experience that does have the potential to pull people away from Windows or developing for Windows Server. So it goes both ways, right? But, but the idea that Microsoft is in any way extending Linux through WSL or Hyper-V is just patently false. We have complete control over what's in those images, hands down, period. If someone hears this interview and they maybe they've always run Linux, but now they're hearing about WSL and Hyper-V for the first time, what are some advantages to them in going and checking out what the work, looking at the new Microsoft and the partnership with Canonical here, what are some advantages in looking into this for them that they may not get just being in their Linux box? So there, in terms of, well, there's, there's, there's the windows and then there's Microsoft. So in terms of Microsoft, there may be tools out there you haven't used before that are now available for Linux. Uh, there may be open source projects you want to get involved in that Microsoft sponsors. There's opportunities there. In terms of WSL, I mean, if you're happy on desktop Linux, please, by all means, stay on desktop Linux. I mean, I'm not encouraging anyone to switch from desktop Linux to Windows. Right. Uh, if you have a friend, you know, who you want to introduce to Linux, this may be a great way to get them started, you know, to kind of start them down that path to where maybe you do install desktop Linux. In terms of, you know, education, you know, if you're a high school computer science teacher, installing Windows substitute for Linux with Ubuntu might be the easiest way to introduce some of those students to Linux and the ecosystem where they find themselves. So that is, you know, some examples of the opportunity I see there. So uh, WSL2 is like a very big difference to WSL, like I, the first one, in, in, including like having Linux kernel in some ways. But it's not available to Windows outside of the Insider's preview yet. Do you have any idea when they will be hitting, it'll be actually available in Windows? And the, like, the, what are the kind of the biggest advantages of WSL2 over 1 in that sense? Like what, what benefits more so? Is there even a reason to have it outside of the Insider Preview because developers are most of the ones who are even interested in it? So WSL1 is a Linux ELF binary translation layer. It parses the Linux binary and translates the Linux system calls to NT system calls. Because NT and Linux kind of evolved around the same time, a lot of those system calls overlap. Uh, and then there's some specific system calls that have to be kind of uh, reassembled before they are processed, and some have to be implemented brand new. WSL2 runs a, WS, runs a Linux kernel in 
uh, virtualization that the WSL container interacts with. It is much more performant. It is, has much more support for uh, certain services and applications that just weren't possible. It has one, the goal is 100% binary compatibility on WSL2. And they got about 95% of the way there on WSL1, but switching to a uh, an actual kernel is, is what's gonna enable them to solve some uh, IO issues that kind of plagued WSL1 and improve that binary support for Linux applications and services. WSL1 um, probably isn't gonna go anywhere for a long time. I mean, it's it was part of uh, Windows Server and Windows Enterprise. So it'll continue to be supported for several years as part of the Microsoft support roadmap. WSL2 uh, will be available in April. Um, Ooh, you actually gave a month. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank yep. you. It will launch around the same time we launch Ubuntu 20.04 LTS. Now, are we going to have to edit that month out or can no. we leave that? Nice. Yeah. All right, cool. What are some of the projects you're excited uh, to be working on with Hyper-V and, or WSL? So I'm very excited right now about WSL Conf. That's the first community gathering we've had around WSL. That actually started, I actually started that before I came to Canonical. And when I came over, Canonical agreed to sponsor it. And we are gathering um, heads of several WSL distros available together with power users and developers and companies from like uh, Rancher Labs and Packet and a whole bunch of uh, interesting people doing interesting things related to Linux and WSL. And that's kind of my current focus. We're also preparing um, 2004 for release. We're always, you know, patching bugs and that kind of thing. And then we, we do plan to bring some new special features to Ubuntu on WSL this year, here in the near future. So outside of WSL and Hyper-V, when I know you're a proponent for Linux as well. You've got a beautiful shirt on. That proves it, if nothing else, by itself. So what do you think, in your opinion, in playing kind of both sides of this, this infrastructure between Microsoft and Linux, and of course, being experienced in Mac and some of the, def- the issues that exist there, what needs to happen for Linux to truly grow? What changes need to take place? So I put it back to you, grow in what way? So Linux... From the desktop, let's let's put it there, yeah. Okay, I would like to see a app store. I would like to see paid app. I mean, this is my personal opinion. This is not political. I think, I, I believe in users paying for apps, those who can afford them, directly to the developers making them. And... I think a, a willingness to to spend money on applications for even though we have many free options available, but a willingness to spend money on open source software for the desktop is one solution towards improving desktop Linux. I also think it needs we need to make it even easier to make desktop Linux apps. We have we have some solutions, but you know, some of the toolkits that we have available like GTK and Qt are still, still have some limitations and some structural problems. And, you know, I think what, you know, Elementary OS is doing with App Center and their development stack is laudable. Uh, I think 
you know, we're going to see more development stacks coming to desktop Linux that should improve things. That's interesting. And, Dustin, does this make, uh, you have some deja vu in a conversation we had earlier this week regarding people paying, basically donating for open source. I mean, this is a big issue is yes, some people donate and they donate very generously throughout the community. It's a very generous thing, but I think there's a whole set of people out there, and this is a problem you brought up, Hayden, that I think everybody's trying to figure out in open source. There's a whole bunch of people out there like, I have the money to donate, but it's free, so I'm not. And, and you know, because it's not giving me anything extra. And when you look at some solutions like Elementary or Zorin, where they're saying, hey, we'll give you the core packages for free, the, the, the OS base, if you will. But if you want us to pre-install a bunch of stuff and, and have some settings and themes, you could pay for that. They're, everybody's trying something different, but the end result is, you know, people need to be able to make a living off of this stuff, especially when they're expected to handle thousands of bug reports and everything else that are coming in. And there really isn't a great way. People say donations, but there are a lot of people who we see projects shutting down. We talk about on the show all the time because the donations didn't come. Or they're or just unreliable. They yeah. Yeah, or they run something in the background that most people don't even realize is an open source project that they could donate for that they're constantly utilizing and things like that. It's it's an issue. Um, and, the the and, other side of it that I fight for is one of the things that brought me to Linux. I can, you know, I've been blessed and Noah talks about this as well, that I can go out there and buy Windows machines and Macs and all of that stuff. That The cost doesn't hurt me, but there are tens of thousands of people out there that Linux helps bridge the digital divide. They would have no other way of having this older system run something and be able to use programs like Krita and GIMP and all this stuff if everything was charged for. And, it, you know, we're working with FreeGeek right now, which that's one of their primary missions too. And so it's so important to have this stuff open source, but at the same time, right, we have this issue with how do they make money? How do they get paid when... They're expected to do their full-time job and then come home and also support other people's computers from all around the world. Well, that's and, just a big problem. I don't think anyone knows how to monetize it yet in a sustainable model because for the growth to happen, you need the investment. You need people to do the work. You need people to do the time. That's why there's been so much success in what I'm calling commercial open sources because there are people getting paid to do it. They can move a lot faster and we just don't seem to have that model yet on the desktop side on how we can get people paid to actually spend the hours needed yeah. to get and, real advancement. And, and the simple fact is that enterprise does pay for Linux and, and they get their priorities first. So, I mean, and Linux is, you know, largely dominated by right now, IBM, you know, so if, if IBM kind of wants something in Linux, like system D, they, they get it. Mm -hmm. an, an enterprise likes system D. So even if you have qualms about system D, there's only so many things you can do because the enterprise just outweigh the individual users so much. And with Penguin, we were able to show that just bootstrapping this little thing for $10 we could build a small workshop that made this great experience for this niche community. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, I made it a point with that revenue to upstream that revenue to some of the projects we specifically relied upon, but you know, not everyone's going to do that. So it's not, 
a complete solution to solving how does the guy who make curl, you know, get paid. Right. But but an app store is potentially a way. It's it's one of the solutions. I mean, right. there's also things like open collective. I mean, I'll, I'll see a great project and I'll see a link to a Patreon and it just makes me so sad when I go and they're getting like five bucks a month. Yeah. You know, for this or sometimes it's zero. Yeah. yeah. I've seen it. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. And they're so, important projects. Also, so basically I agree completely. And I think that there's, there's uh, I think just correct me if I'm wrong, but so you're, you're kind of saying that the solution would be like crypto miners. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, cool. that's cool. 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 Yeah. yeah, totally. Oh yeah, and <laughs> everybody loves a crypto miner, <laughs> right? We're gonna start with Michael's machine first. Uh, exactly. We're gonna test it there. <laughs> yeah, I'm already having connection issues, so we're not gonna do that. <laughs> we actually had there. There was a company who approached us at Penguin and said, "Help us monet. You know, we can help you monetize your app by embedding a crypto miner in it." <laughs> What's wrong with you people? But like, they were they were spamming app developers, and I know we all like stuff for free, but being able to pay five ten dollars can actually mean four people oh, yeah. work full time for this. Yeah, I totally agree. Like that, the 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 biggest issue I consider in Linux is the 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 lack of consideration of the time for the developers because it's not necessarily a situation of entitlement, even though some people would describe it that way. It's more of a uh, is it's more of a, a something that is just an expectation that has been developed for over the like multiple decades that people just kind of see it as that's how it works and then they just never think about it again whereas it is a fundamental importance for linux to have that and open source to have that so that it can continue to expand upon where it is already i agree so we're talking about expectations here and you've been so bold to Rank your favorite Star Trek movies online. Apparently, I'm so glad you're going like here, this. Dustin. <laughs> this is the real question that everyone's been waiting for. And that question is: We need to know why Undiscovered Country is not your number one. Right. You know, poor, poor judgment. judgment might be my first answer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right. There's right. a reputation to be fixed here. Yes. Uh-huh. And so now, you know, you're on the spot, and you got to list your best captains from best to worst. Yeah. You, and, you, you obviously know, can't pick movies well. So let's let's go, with, <laughs> let's go with captains here. Best and this captains is on record, in Star so. Trek on record. Kirk, Picard, Janeway, tied with Cisco. Nice. Well, yeah. you got the first two absolutely right, and so yeah. I'm going to give you mad props for that. When you threw Janeway in there, you were wrong, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll forgive you. Yeah, you're wrong. No, I mean, I, I Janeway's not bad. Voyager's fan. bad. Yeah. We've got to get you to come to a lug that I'm at, Hayden, just so, if nothing else, we could talk Star Trek. Because when I saw you were a Star Trek fan, I was like, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah, and then I'll come and there I, and we could just talk about how awful Voyager is, because I hate Voyager. Yeah. You know, Voyager was weird, because it was the only one that came out new when I was, like, watching Star Trek. Uh, so, so, you watched, so you watched the TNG and, yeah. like, in syndication, and then... Like DS9, I was a couple seasons behind on, but then Voyager came out, and that was the one that like really came out during my. And that hooks so, you. So it has a special. Well, you know, I was into the movies too. You know, I was yeah. big fan of the the especially the like the Spock arc between two and uh, oh yeah five. Um, and and I feel like Undiscovered Country is like a great standalone. Like it doesn't have the the arc that some of the early movies have. That's and fair. Yeah. In that way, I think it's a lot like um, Solo or um, Rogue One. No, no, no. It's, this... it's not like Solo because Solo, you know, it's actually good. So it's not like that. 
We're, we're very opinionated on our movies here. <laughs> That's fine. I am too. But I mean, the fact is, Solo and Rogue One were just better than the the final trilogy. No matter. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. It. Rogue One definitely, so, especially with the Vader so, like hallway thing. Awesome. Yeah. So in terms of a standalone movie, that's an allegory for the cold end of the Cold War. Undiscovered is a good movie, but it's yeah. hard to beat. Uh, it's hard to beat whales. That's that's true. You know, the whales, the plexiglass, the picking up the mouse, the low computer. I mean, there's some classic scenes in there that yeah, yeah can't can't be denied. Yeah, that's true. And and as long as you didn't put Voyager at the top of your list, we're good. The new Picard, by the way, uh, is fantastic. So oh, I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to to, to check out a new Star Trek that's going to get you hooked. Uh, the first episode was amazing. Yeah. Um, and of course, the Enterprise uses Linux for people asking, why are we talking about Star Trek? Yeah, of course. Podcast? Obviously, Enterprise uses Linux. Yes. Clear. I mean, that's what the L means in L cars, if you didn't know. So it's exactly. Just, yes. So anyway, uh, thanks for coming to the show and to, to discuss uh, WSL and Hyper-V with us. Uh, we've, it's been, you know, we've been quite vocal about how we were skeptical of the work from Canonical and others in the community. So that and it's being done for uh, Microsoft and all these projects and stuff. So we appreciate your willingness to come on here and navigate through the minefield, so to speak, to provide your point of view for our listeners. Great for having me. I I appreciate you know that some in the established Linux community have you know may have initially kind of been dismissive or very skeptical and have at least kept an open mind and been willing to consider like WSL as a potential platform for Linux and being open to us as Linux users in, you know, the other small subset of Linux communities. Right. Um, Cause we're going to be a minority and we're going to be the oddballs that, that run Linux on windows. And uh, I appreciate um, that the broader Linux desktop community is, is at least giving us a shake. Yeah, so no, we're definitely so much. yeah. You're welcome. And on this show, we're definitely open minded. I mean, I'm still skeptical, and it's still don't trust myself. But at least I'm open minded about it. Okay. Yeah, fair, no, and, and really, enough. Hayden, you coming on this show and going through a gauntlet because, like, like Michael said, we've we've not exactly been the easiest on this project. So your willingness to come on here and objection, that, we've been fantastic. And, 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 and be honest too, right? And be honest, and I appreciate it. And be honest and and come out and say the things that we all kind of already know to be true, but nobody really wants to admit out loud. Yeah, you were you were fantastic in your honesty and just going through the questions. And we had a gauntlet of them. We made a whole show out of you. So seriously, when I say this, thank you very much for coming on the show and be willing to go through those. I promise you, if you do come back, if Martin ever lets you come back, I know he's probably got you reading manuals, <laughs> but if Martin ever lets you come back. Uh, it will be a shorter interview and you could just talk about new things that are coming out now that we've got your whole history and life story down in this episode. So thank you. Sure. Great. No, I'd love to be back anytime. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Awesome. A big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want a behind the scenes pass into the making of the show and an opportunity to chat with us live, consider becoming a patron. Patrons help keep this show going and get perks like they get access to the unedited recordings and they can sit here with us on the live shows and sometimes even crack us up in the middle of a series story because we watch their chat as it's going and the best part is you can join for just a few dollars check out patreon or sponsors head to destinationlinux.org to get more information
Destination Linux Network is also a new way for you to become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network. It's almost like we thought a little bit about that URL. <laughs> and you can join the forums. Now, you can discuss the shows. You can discuss the network. You can discuss with listeners from around the world all in one place. If you're looking for the central hub for Linux, this is it. It's destinationlinux.network. If you're looking for more place for live chat sessions to join the Telegram group, we also have over a 1,000 members in the community interacting with one another and sharing their passion for Linux. So head over to destinationlinux.network to learn more. We love hearing from you, so please get back to us and provide some feedback or ask any burning questions that you may have. Send video links or comments to our email address. That would be comments at destinationlinux.org. Please try to keep the comments brief as we may include them in a future episode of the show. If you want more content from us, the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels you can check out, a part of the Destination Linux network. You can check out uh, Ryan's content at youtube.com slash dosgeek, where he fills your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. So Zeb isn't with us for this week, but you can check out his content on youtube.com slash Boss, where you can find him doing streams about Euro Truck Simulator and maybe use some Gentoo streams and stuff like that. You can find my content on tuxdigital.com, where I do an in-depth weekly Linux GNU's podcast, This Week in Linux, and other Linux-related content. Noah can be found at the Ask Noah Show, and you can he does this weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays, where you can join and call, call in and answer. he'll answer all your tech and Linux questions. And Dustin, where do folks find you? Uh, my primary home seems to be Twitter, just at bashfulrobot. Outside of that, sometimes on the Ubuntu Budgie forums over at discourse.ubuntubudgie.org. Outside of that, just Twitter. All right. Nice. We'll, we'll have links, those links in the show notes as well. And also, uh, be sure to check out all the other just shows on the Destination Linux Network, like Hardware Addicts, Linux for Everyone, and the DLN Extended Podcast. Everybody have a great week, and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>